You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the show with the host that wishes he could be just as cool as Robin Zander. To want me. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name's Sean Nickel, and my job on the show, as it has always been, is to cover the Green Lantern comics, specifically the Green Lantern comics, starting with cover date June 1990 and ending with November 2004, all the while putting a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. And we're going through the Ben Ray run. Yep, it's not been the most pleasurable thing, but... Actually, the story gets a little better this time out as we're taking it part two of the Wanted story arc that Ben Rave's doing, featuring Kyle in a really goofy, ridiculous shadow hockey armor type thing, trying to infiltrate the Black Circle and find out just what the heck these aliens that Amon Sur has captured are being held captive for. Plus, as a bonus, we've got an excellent story written a couple of years ahead of this, or a couple of years prior to this, called Green Lantern Will World, which deals with Hal Jordan taking a test that basically puts him in the center of the central power battery, but doesn't allow him to blow it up and destroy all the Guardians. Well, technically the Guardians killed themselves, but Hal did blow up the central power battery, but that's neither here nor there. Which is a wonderful story by J.M. DeMatteis, and it has some really trippy art by um, Seth Fisher. It's a really fun story. I hope you guys will really enjoy it. Um, I'm covering it from the uh, softcover edition. Uh, the uh, hardcover edition, I think, came out in 2001, but this one came out the same month that this Green Lantern comic, so I thought it'd be appropriate to at least cover it here. But we're going to be doing that, as well as playing some new promos and uh, getting into the comic, which thankfully has significantly less stories with Jenny Lynn Hayden in it, which makes me happy because my god Ben Rabe cannot write Jenny at all but we'll be doing the we'll be doing the coverage of the comic nonetheless so right after this we'll get right into our coverage of the comic Green Lantern number 172 to battle stations, engage. 
think Picard is a pain, isn't he? Interesting. No redeeming qualities. I think you should be destroyed. The great Captain Picard of Starfleet falls to Earth. Go back. Thou shalt most certainly die. Protect yourself, Captain, or they'll destroy you. We are dangerous. What can I offer except myself? Join the two true freaks, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell, for Star Trek Monthly Monday. Every month, the freaks will bring you two episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation and more. Episodes of Star Trek Monthly Monday can be found for free at twotruefreaks.com. They can also be downloaded for free from iTunes. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together. Soak them down or burn them up. No one does it better. Whenever you find trouble, they'll always be there to catch them in a bubble or even torch their hair. Stand for truth and justice and see on land. Fire and Water Podcast, celebrating Aquaman, King of the Seven Seas, and Firestorm, the Nuclear Man. Available weekly on Aquaman Trine, Firestorm Van, and on iTunes and Stitcher. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, here to talk about Firestorm. Along with me is my co-host, Rob Kelly, here to talk about some guy that talks to fish. Really? You're going to pull this crap during the promo? Bad enough, I have to put up with your shenanigans every week, but... And we're back. And what you finally heard there was a podcast promo for the Fire and Water podcast. Yes, after 100 episodes and over three years on the air, Shag and Rob finally got off their asses and made a promo for their main show rather than just who's who. If you aren't listening to the Fire and Water podcast, shame on you. You should just drop this show immediately and go pick up all their back episodes and listen to them because that's how awesome that show is. Rob, Like I said, Rob and Shag do a great show. Listen to everything over on the Fire and Water podcast hilarious bunch of guys and a hilarious bunch of shows which is in stark contrast to this comic which is not so hilarious it's greenlander number 172 greenlander number 172 was cover dated february 2004 and released on december 31st of 2003 the cover price was 225 us and 350 in canada and the title was wanted part two the writer was benjamin rabe the penciler was james bosch or jim firm however he'd like to 
see his pseudonym be put in the book. The inker was Rodney Ramos, colorist Moose Bowman. Letter was Jared K. Fletcher. The associate editor was Stephen Wacker. And the editor was Peter Tomasi. On the good ship Lollipop, Ruby Shadowhawk, also known as Mr. Vasquez, also not known as Green Lantern Kyle Rayner, receives a hollow message from Amon Sura's Hoochimama Lackey, telling him that him and his crew have their next assignment, kill Izar the Zakaran, and re- rescue the Black Circle hostages. Fuchsia Shadowhawk complies, then heads down to the ship's engineering, where Kilowog is making repairs to the ship's warp core, or whatever. After getting the whole talk about getting into deep with this Vasquez character, Kyle rings the warp core back into working order, raising the ship's sails and setting out to find his prey. Meanwhile, in Izar's hideout on the planet Zakaria, his minions inform him that the prisoners aren't giving up any more information about Amon Sur. This irks Izar, who beheads the crony with a pink boomerang ninja star. I wish I was making that up. But disposal of the body will have to wait, as Mr. Vasquez's spaceship has arrived and fired on the hideout, blowing a portion of it up real good. Sending the former landers off to rescue the prisoners, Kyle dons his Scarlet Shadowhawk helm and heads down to take out Izar, much to Kilowog's chagrin. Cut to Earth, where Marin Dathalus is interviewing for a job with Miss Chase. Chase says that Marin would be perfect for the job at their information repository, but she'd be required to move to Arizona. But with Moran being a dark star who's worked on dozens of inhospitable worlds, that should be a walk in the park for her. What might not be such a walk in the park is the attacking hordes of robotic minions that suddenly decided to crash through the building's 30th story window. Across the galaxy, Tippy Turtle and the crew of the Tsunami are feeling up at a spaceport when Tippy comes across an individual in the local cantina who is very interested in his friend, the Green Lantern. Of course, this individual is Shiro Nova, the Boba Fett of the Green Lantern run, and not really in the cool way. But speaking of Green Lantern, he, in the guise of Maroon Shadowhawk, is beating up the squid people aside his former Green Lantern partners. Handily taking him down, Sam and Shadowhawk ask where the Black Circle hostages are, and Vaz says he's used his Wolverine-like sense of smell to track them to an escaping spaceship. Okay... Crimson Shadowhawk flies up to confront Izar and gets a pink boomerang ninja star thrown at him for his trouble. But luckily, he Bruce leaves them and sends them back at Izar, pinning him to the wall. Preparing to do the job that Amon sent him to do, Raspberry Shadowhawk draws Izar's sword and holds it to the squid's neck, ready to slice up some calamari. Sometime later, Cardinal Shadowhawk calls Amonsura's Hoochimama assistant with the news that Izar is dead and the prisoners are ready to be brought home. Reluctantly, Huchu gives Vasquez the Black Circle coordinates, much to her disappointment. Satisfied with his ruse, Kyle teleports the unconscious Izar to the maximum security pound-me-in-the-ass space prison and tells Kilowog he's found out who the real power behind the Black Circle is, the Quardians. Now, although this wasn't a great issue, it was definitely better than the last couple, probably due to the absence of story dealing with Terry and Jenny. Rabe just doesn't have a good handle on those characters. Not that it really has a great handle on Kyle, but his grasp on Kyle is specifically better than his grasp on Jenny and Terry in the book. I really don't have much to say about this other than, you know, it was a decent issue. I guess... Uh, Jim Fern or James Bosch, whatever he's going by, does a decent job with some of the art, specifically with some of the alien characters, 
But once again, when it comes to characters like Kyle, he has a real problem drawing him and making him look on model. So, <laughs> I guess in the course of things, this is a better book in the Ben Rabe run, but still significantly lesser than a lot of the stuff we've seen come before it. Uh, again, trying to look for the positive here. Let's look at the book and see if we can find some more positives. Starting with the cover, we got Karen Grant doing another interesting, very vibrant-looking color that has very little to do with goings on in the book. It's got Kyle and the rest of the quote-unquote Green Lantern Corps sort of flying in to take down some people, but none of these characters are in these costumes anywhere in the book. They're all in their hidden ruby shadowhawk armor type things. It is a dynamic color. I, I enjoy the sort of stylistic look that Karen Grant brings to the characters. But all in all, it's one of those covers that's all flash and no substance. There's nothing in this going on in the book, so it kind of fails on that level. Page one, the comment I made about uh, Bosch doing some really interesting character designs. It's very apparent on this page where we see the design of Izar, the Zakarian or whatever, and he looks like a multiple tentacle squid-headed Dr. Zoidberg with three eyes. It's it's a really cool design uh, That that's an interesting-looking character that I think I could get behind in the book, but unfortunately I don't think we're going to see much more of him as we see at the end of the book. He's put away in prison. Page three, we get another nice view of the ship that Kyle has quote-unquote purchased for his ruse against the Black Circle storyline. And of course, it looks like the stereotypical spaceship that looks like a schooner from the 1800s. You know, uh, even with sails or, I guess, electronic sails or whatever, and the whole thing. I guess if you're in space, design can be whatever it wants to be, since there is no friction or having a deal with different forces acting upon it but it's just kind of a lazy stereotypical design for the ship i guess that's my that's my takeaway from it moving on to page four i think uh let's see bosch does a good job with drawing kilowog he looks really good his facial a lot of times it's hard for artists to get kill to get kilowog's face down right and Bosch seems to do a good job here, but for some reason he's drawing him shirtless, and I don't know why he's running around. Uh, does he think he's the thing, essentially, because he's not, but he's running around shirtless, so whatever. Plus, we get a line here in the third panel where Kyle makes a comment of, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, and... Uh, attributes it to Spock rather than what uh, Kilowog thinks would be something Hal Jordan would say, which is just Ben Ray putting in his little humorous anecdotes that Kyle would say that don't seem out of place, but, well, I guess they do kind of seem out of place. They don't seem like things that Kyle would actually say. It's just a different writing style that he has over, say, even Judd Winnick and specifically Ron Mars. Not that it's bad, it's just, it's not what I would expect Kyle to be. Page 7. Izar decapitates one of his little squid minions with a pink boomerang ninja star. 
This is just... I'm moving on. Page 9, for some reason, I guess plot contrivance, Cal is able to teleport people with his ring uh, as he teleports the uh, members of the Green Lantern Corps down to the planet to try and mop up the aliens. Weird. However, I will admit, once again, uh, Bosch or Fern does a really good job on Kilowog, and he gets his face really well as Kilowog's kind of concerned about Kyle going into this thing against the Black Circle as the Vasquez character. And you get this really emotional picture of, of Kilowog on this final panel of the page. Like I said before, a lot of times, especially with facial, facial features, people don't get Kilowog right. And I think Jim Fern or James Bosch, whatever he's going by, does a good job in this page. Page 10, I'm not completely familiar with the Chase series that came out in the late 90s, early 2000s. In fact, I think it came out sometime around uh, DC 1 million, if I'm thinking right. But it was a limited series, and I think this might be Detective Chase from the DEO here that's interviewing uh, Miranda Thalas. Not really certain, but I guess we'll figure it out in the next issue or so. And moving on to page 11, I'm actually interested with this side story with Marin. It's it's significantly more interesting, or it's holding my attention a heck of a lot better than the story with Terry, and especially the story with Jenny. Just, those are just bad. This Maybe it's just because those are so bad I'm looking to find anything good in the book, and this being marginally better just makes it seem all the much better, or all the more better. Eh. Pages 12 through 13, we get the all subplots accounted for with T.P. the Turtle and Shiro Nova, so at least we know that those characters are continuing on in the storyline. Then page 16, we get the ridiculous concept that Vaz has a sense of smell that's so specific he can smell the aliens that they were tracking, not only over vast differences, but within a spaceship that's escaping orbit from this planet. It begs credulity but comics i guess that's the the answer page 19 we find out finally that the associates that amon was keeping or was trying to retrieve as prisoners from izar were actually helping him create the blind or create something with the blind which i guess we'll see more of in the next couple of issues hopefully and then finally, on page 22, we're revealed that the associates Amon was trying to get Vasquez to rescue were Cordians. So the Cordians are back, which is, I guess it was a nice way to see them back at the beginning of the Judd Winnick run. But here it just, it doesn't enthrall me at all. And are we really supposed to be worried about the Cordians? I mean, Green Lantern mops the floor with the Cordians like every other issue during the Silver Age. You don't think Kyle's going to be able to do the same thing? So, you know, like I said, I enjoyed the issue significantly more than the past one, but it's still not grabbing my attention the way that Ron Mars and Judd Winnick had been able to. I'm hoping that as we traverse further down, I'll get a better sense of what Ben Ray was trying to do and it'll actually be more enjoyable for me. But let's go ahead and take a look at the ads in this issue, and we'll see what kind of ads they have, see if those are more, enjoy more enjoyable to me. Starting with the front inside cover, we get a fold-out cover, which is an advertisement for the game Kaya Dark Lineage, which is, I think we talked about this, it's a chick in a belly shirt with a spinny ninja blade, and she goes to fight evil creatures and master magical powers. 
The advertisement uh, says it's been two years in the making. Uh, it's a game from Atari. It debuted at Comic Con in 2003 to rave reviews from those who from those who experienced the game. And then I don't know nothing else because it hasn't had any sequels. I haven't really heard about it. I was watching significant amounts of X play on uh, G4 at the time. Never heard of the game, so. Yeah, just because it makes waves at Comic-Con doesn't mean it's going to be a popular game at all. A few more pages at hand, or a few more pages in, we get uh, Tara Dekides and her advertisement for Campbell's uh, Cup of Soup. Covered that before. Get an advertisement for the Game Boy Advance uh, SP, which uh, you should order for the holidays. I think this came out just right after Christmas, so missing the boat a little bit on that. A few more pages in, you get an advertisement, a phone with a text message option saying, Yo, dude, Xmas made easy. These DVDs are great gifts, and it's all in wonderful truncated text speech. And they're offering uh, DVDs such as Zoolander, Tommy Boy, Orange County, Tomb Raider, Tomb Raider 2, the SpongeBob movie. What is this? Extreme Ops, oh lord, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, Black Sheep, Score, or Night at the Roxbury, there was a wonderful one, and Abandoned, which I've never heard of, but looks like a horror movie because there's a couple of people and a knife. It looks kind of reminiscent of, oh, that Bruce Willis movie or that Michael Keaton movie about the crazy person. So DVD is from Paramount Home Entertainment. After that, we get another... You know, Battlefield slash Call of Duty knockoff called Kill Switch. The advertisement says take cover or says cover or religion on this battlefield. Someone finds something. So obviously you either need to find your god or find a place to hide behind because you're going to meet that maker, I guess. Whatever. Uh, an advertisement for Jake and Fighters, which I guess is a dice game with uh, various sort of mecha samurai warrior type things. Never played this. Perhaps Luke Giaconetti could fill me in on this. Never seen before. After that, a two-page splash for Jack 2, the sequel to Daxter and, or Jack and Daxter with the uh, pointy-eared elfish guy with a big gun and his little squirrel sidekick going around and shooting things. Armed and Dangerous is next, another game with various people shooting things. I guess it's uh, the you know shooty game type thing. This one, however, I think was... Yeah, this is the LucasArts game, so it probably has a bit more promise than some of the other games. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from the... Uh, where was this? It looks more Eastman and Laird. I think we covered this one again last time. And then after that, we get the advertisement for Grabbed by the Ghoulies. I know we covered that. I'm still not interested zombie sort of platformer game an advertisement uh after that for pirates of the caribbean the curse of the black pool the uh mega mammoth movie starring johnny depp orlando bloom jeffrey rush and kira knightley in you know a ridiculously tight corset you buy that on dvd i don't know if it's it doesn't say on blu-ray yet i don't know if blu-rays were pertinent right at this time even though i think the i think the playstation 2 hadn't made it out they're still advertising for xbox so Blu-rays probably aren't out yet. We've got Voodoo Vince as the next video game coming up after that. I know we really didn't care about that. Then a video game or 
comic for Drake of the 99 Dragons. It's got this sort of vampire-looking guy with open shirt, jacket, and tattoos on his chest carrying a couple of guns. It says killer first issue. Maybe it's a sort of... It looks more like a platformer where you play sort of as a comic character. Maybe it has a story-type mode in it. I have no idea. Never heard of it again. A lot of these games I haven't heard of. After that, you get an advertisement to build uh, Gundam Battle Scarred figures, which look pretty cool. It's the uh, giant robots with uh, a bunch of battle scarring on them. What does it say here? Batter, uh, uh, they show different, uh, I guess, different types uh, or different types of weapon hits that the Gundams have on them. And they say this one was uh, Battle Over the Federal Forces Kilimanjaro base, and then just messing around with a new laser cannon. Where they got these weapons. I guess that's kind of cool. You know, you've got your Gundam that are in pristine, you know, mint condition. And you've got these ones that look like they've been through a bunch of battles. So that's kind of neat. After that, we get an advertisement for the second book in the Spellbinding Keys to the Kingdom series by Garth Nix. This is the story Grim Tuesday. Never heard of Garth Nix. Uh, it's a story about... A kid named Arthur Penhall Penhalligan, who didn't think he could ever have, who didn't have to return to his fantastical house that only he can see. So obviously, trying to tap into the Harry Potter type vibe that people were getting around this era, I guess. We've got Maximum Chase, another road rash type Armageddon type game where you race around things. I don't know. Um, the Disney Haunted Mansion game, which is interesting because once again, I didn't know this movie tie-in was actually ported to a game and it's probably really horrible if it's in any way based off the movie in the same name. Sadly, it's probably has nothing to do or very little to do with the Haunted Mansion from Disney World or Disneyland. The back inside cover is an advertisement once again for Magic Super Series, where you can win a $1,000 scholarship for uh, playing in Magic the Gathering, which has supposedly been around for 10 years. And then the back outside cover is Own a Piece of WrestleMania History, which are Fleer cards for wrestlers. And I'm trying to see if I know any of these people. No, unfortunately. Uh, well, there was an. Uh, it looks like there's an Andre the Giant one. Various different poses. And it also advertises the WWE pay-per-view events. So, yeah, there you go. And I guess I guess they have changed their name to the WWE because now the WWF is the World Wildlife Fund, and they won't don't want people getting wrestling confused with you know what they're doing to uh, save endangered animals, which makes sense. But yeah, some new ads for some games that are probably completely forgettable and some ads that we've seen before. Not much new here. But what we have new here is a second book, which we haven't had in a while. And this one, I think, is going to be kind of a fun one. This is going to be Green Lantern Will World, and we'll be covering it right after these podcast promo breaks. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice, blind justice, a guardian devil. <coughs> no. No, no, that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster. 
but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil. You get it. You get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? Two true freaks just got a little more random. Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that looks at everything random in the world of popular culture, is now on the Two True Freaks Network. Every episode is something different. Movies, comics, television, music. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork, at twotruefreaks.com and popcultureaffidavit.com. And we are back to take a look at our second book this time out. And unfortunately, the last second book we're going to be covering before the before the end of the show. Wow, it's all single issues from this point out. Wow. Anyhow, this one is Green Lantern Will World. And this one was cover dated 2004 and released on December 24th, 2004. The hardcover version of this, however, was released on May 23rd of 2001. The softcover price was $17.95, so this was a pretty important issue. The title of it, or if not important, at least pricey, the title of it was Will World. Let me try that again. Will World. And the writer was J.M. DeMatteis. The artist was Seth Fisher. The letter was Tom Orsachowski. The colorist was Chris Chakri. And the editor was Joey Cavalieri. Once upon a time... Somewhere, a green-masked man with no name rides through the middle of a desert canyon. Speaking to his steed of his confusion of who and where he is, the man eventually wanders into a deserted city. Well, deserted except for a rickshaw bicyclist who runs into the masked man's mount, toppling him and breaking the beast's leg in the process. Saddened by Trigger's predicament, the masked man shoots the creature, putting it out of its misery. But, much to the relief of the bicyclist, the gunshot only revealed a smaller version of Trigger that crawls out of the bullet wound. Having no ride and no idea where he needs to go, the masked man hitches the ride with the cyclist to the land of Odd. Entering the city, the cyclist reveals himself as Mufon and asks if the masked man wants to find a hotel for the night. The masked man says that that would be great but is stunned by the disparity between the haves and have-nots living in the city of Odd. Mufon says that's just the way things are as he pulls up to the local Motel 6, which is being bullied, everyone intended, by actual cowboys. The masked man doesn't like the way the bulls are treating the lady folk and zaps them with green energy, turning them into pink tutu-wearing ballerinas. Or, should I say, bullerinas. <laughs> uh, never mind. The duo enter a bar that makes the Moss Eisley Cantina look like a bank manager's meeting, and are greeted by a sixth-armed barmaid, Kelly, who offers to put the masked man up for the night, provided he can pay. 
The masked man reaches into his pockets and pulls out more money than the patrons have seen in ages. Seeing that he can definitely pay for the room, Telly takes him there as he asks what's up with all the freaks and geeks in this neighborhood. Kelly and Mufon are confused as each of them perceive their surroundings as perfectly normal to each of them. Reaching the room, the masked man passes out on the bed, while Kelly proclaims his hotness, and Mufon proclaims his craziness. Some time has passed, and the masked man awakens and opens the window to see what time of day it is. Pulling back the curtains, he is greeted by the giant floaty head of Marion Barry. Weird. Nonplussed, he heads to the bathroom to shower, but sees a Peter Max talking jellyfish lying on his nightstand. Picking it up, the masked man gets face-tugged by the nutty Nidarian and trips out, thinking that he's swimming naked underwater and in need of rescuing someone named Marwand. Luckily, the effects wear off quickly, and he's back in his room talking to a Tinkerbell-sized angel named Clance, who plays bass in the house band. Looking into the man's mind, she realizes that he can see the odd things going around him, while the other people only see their own individual universes. She also thinks that he was brought here to take down the Machine Works, a place where awful things go on. The masked man says that he's no hero, but Glance thinks otherwise. Sometime later, Mufon, Kelly, and the masked man are out enjoying the sights when the trio is approached by the cowboys from earlier. Once again, the masked man does something and turns them into actual cows, surprising his companions. But the burst of green energy focuses the masked man, and he witnesses familiar green-suited aliens floating in bubbles overhead. Wanting to investigate, the masked man borrows a triplane that just happens to be in the middle of the street, okay, and flies up to the bubbled people, remembering that his name is Hal. As he flies up to the people, the floaty heads demand that he hand over the plane immediately, but Hal ignores the demands. Unfortunately, he can't ignore being trapped in a bubble himself, which causes his plane to crash and Hal to fall to the ground. Kelly and Mufon rush to his aid, while Hal sees the giant heads taking Marwan to the headquarters. Get it? The headquarters, because they're giant heads. Never mind. Hal exclaims that he's going after them, no matter what the risk. Book 2, Assault on Headquarters, begins with a giant pink tuxedo-wearing Jiminy Cricket doing a song and dance in a hoity-toity club that Hal, Kelly, and Mufon are attempting to sneak into. Luckily, Mufon has some connections with the grasshopper guy, whose name is Cole, and he directs the trio to someone who can help them find Marwand. And that someone is the super-obese Buddha, Kata Pilar, who helps Cal break into the headquarters by force-feeding him some head cheese, which turns him into a giant floaty head capable of headquarters infiltration. <sighs> Getting ready to head out. <laughs> Get it? Glance shrinks the crew down so that they can fit inside Howlhead's mouth as they travel to the headquarters. Along the way, they encounter floaty heads which quell an uprising by literally erasing their reality. When they finally make it to the headquarters, Howlhead heads to Area 00-2, an information center where Hal finds a 3.5-inch floppy disk that directs him to the head of Nowhere Land. Hoping that he'll find some answers there, Hal and company prepare to leave, but get surrounded by the floaty heads who plan on erasing him from existence just as they did the people before. Hal, officially fed up with this shit, prepares to blast them with his ring magic, but all of a sudden it fizzles out and he has to take the alternate route and simply run away. 
guessing that Katal took something that prevented him from using the ring, Hal runs into the head. Head, who proclaims that Hal is the greatest threat to this reality ever, then proceeds to skewer him with his pointy nose. Hal slips away, seeing moments of his life flash before his dying eyes, before Glance tells him that this is all a dream, and if he believes, he can live again. Book 3, Nowhere Land, sees Hal being reborn in the machine works as Glance babbles on about some metaphysical mumbo-jumbo. Hal breaks free of the Eggmen, who are restraining him, and tries to rescue Mufon and Kelly, who are being held prisoner. But because Hal isn't convinced of his ability to use his will, he can't rescue them. So instead, he and Glance head out to Nowhere Land, first via a construct paper airplane, then via a regrown trigger. As they wander through the desert, Glance and Hal eventually come across an oasis, one which happens to pull Hal into the water and warns him to stop his quest. However, Hal speaks a familiar oath and bursts out of the water clad in his Green Lantern uniform. Telling him that he's become what he truly is, Glance welcomes Hal to Nowhere Land, then promptly disappears, leaving behind a book entitled Glance, the Littlest Angel, which Hal remembers from his childhood. Suddenly, images of balding blue men appear before Hal, and he begins to question this reality. But Hal isn't going to give in to his fear, and presses onward through Nowhere Land, encountering endless universes floating in bubbles in front of him. Soon, he encounters a familiar house where he finds a young boy listening to the tale of Barwand and Glance exploring vast universes, and Kelly and Mufon taking care of him. The boy leaps into Hal's arms, but just as that happens, the walls of reality break down, and dozens of Dr. Zoidbergs break into the house and prepare to destroy Hal's reality. Book 4, Before I Wake, has Hal attempting to hold back the hordes of the Whirlwind with little success. As the entity makes its way to destroy the Land of Odd, Marwan explains to Hal that he is actually Hal as a boy, and Marwan was a character in the book that he used to read a character he used to pretend that he was. In fact, Kelly used to be his babysitter that he had a crush on. Realizing that these realities are combining and what he needs to do, Hal heads back to Odd to try and stop the whirlwind, and finally realizes that he is the one in control of what's going on. He is the dreamer of this dream, and he can change it if he only believes. And with that, Hal finally remembers it all. He is a Green Lantern, and this reality was created as a part of the test that the Guardians of the Universe have each lander take before they are given the ring. Hal entered the central power battery and created his own universe based upon images of his own mind, and he has the power to control them and leave the dream. Unfortunately, the Whirlwind has other plans and begins to destroy all that Hal has created. But Hal realizes that the power of creation comes not only from his mind, but from his heart, and with that sappy sentiment, Hal is able to blow up the whirlwind, save Odd, and escape the central power battery. And as Hal basks in the praise of his fellow lanterns after escaping, he and Kilowog ponder whether or not Will World still exists. Hal says, who's to say that we're not dreaming each other, or something else isn't dreaming all of us? And as the scene pans away, we see reality existing in young Hal blowing bubbles, while further back, we see Mufon watching a young Hal in a crystal ball of his own. Every one of us has all we need. Sky of blue and sea of green. In our yellow submarine. 
that was uh that was a long one and kind of a trippy one as well. I mean, a lot of these hardcover, softcover stories are long reads. And yes, this one was very trippy, but it was also really good. The art was done, like I said, by the late Seth Fisher, and it's really gorgeous and detailed, but sometimes it's so psychedelic and just out there that it makes the story somewhat unapproachable. However, after I read it a couple of times all the way through, I was able to get the gist of it. Obviously, I layered the soundtrack underneath this with a lot of Beatles songs, because it kind of takes that uh, into account in the story. In fact, there's a couple of references that when I was reading it through that I kind of got the Eggman in there. So obviously J.M. DeMatteis is borrowing heavily from the works of the Beatles, which isn't a bad thing. And in a book that's supposed to be basically how creating things in his mind, having references to Beatles songs isn't really too far out there. Um, I'm not really going to go page by page notes because I've been speaking for long enough and I know listening to me for this amount of time is detrimental both to my voice and to your ears, but suffice it to say this was a really fun, illustrated, if not kind of trippy story that I think any Green Lantern fan would enjoy. If you can't find the hardcover version, which I know will probably run you a heck of a lot, or even the softcover version, you can also seek out the DC Comics presents Green Lantern Will World from 2011. They released a lot of these sort of long-form stories at that time underneath the banner of DC Comics Presents, and if if I could say myself, this is a book well worth tracking down. Really fun read. It, beautiful art by Fisher. Uh, I think uh, specifically comparing it to the stories of Ben Ray from the time and getting the chance to read this has definitely made this a much more enjoyable episode than if I would have just done the Ben Rabe story by itself. But sadly, next time out, we've got another Ben Rabe story to look at. It's Green Lantern number 173, and hopefully we'll get over the whole Jenny Lynn Hayden thing, and maybe we won't have to deal with that all that much. Who knows? I'll have to get reading as soon as I get done with this podcast. But thank you again for downloading and listening. I hope you come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Until then, everyone, have a great week. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Inkle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys podcast, and you, you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well, 
and now you can find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonza Core contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was Cheap Trick and the song I Want You to Want Me Live from their album At Budokan. Now, if this was the 70s, everyone would be essentially issued a Live at Budokan album, which you would have to listen to along with Destroyer by Kiss and probably some other songs and albums from the 70s that I really don't know. Anyhow, this is a fun song, regardless of the fact that it's from the 70s, and if you'd like to buy it, well there's one place you should go. That's Amazon.com. But of course, before you go to Amazon.com, I would ask that you go to 2TrueFreaks.com. If you go to 2TrueFreaks.com, there's a little banner in the upper left-hand corner. Click on that and you'll be transported to Amazon where you can buy this album, buy the CD, or buy the MP3 download of the song. Plus, there's myriad other things you can buy, from movies to games to videos, anything that the modern nerd could ever want. And all, again, for ridiculously low prices. Plus, if you use the link at TutureFreaks.com to buy something at Amazon, a little bit of your purchase price will go back to the TutureFreaks website. It doesn't cost you anything extra, but it really helps us out. So anytime you're thinking about buying music from the 1970s, and who isn't thinking of buying music from the 1970s, please use the link to Amazon.com and TutureFreaks.com. <laughs>